everybody. Welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the Photography Podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full-time jobs, full-time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a Photog Adventure of your own. It's episode 164, and we are back quickly with another episode because I had the opportunity to pull in a friend of mine who has been a friend since the beginning of Photog Adventures. And in that time, I've seen this guy go off the charts with amazing photography and so we get to learn a little bit about where he's gone in his journey how it transitioned him from you know amateur hobbyist to he won't call it himself professional but he has professional level quality art and what's changed what what went well for him what he learned from and also an experience that he had last summer that I think all of us are going to be jealous of so I bring on today my guest co-host Phil Sisto. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's good that we finally get to be, you know, talking in person like this. I know, right? Um, oh, man. Like you said, I've been I've been following the podcast since basically the very beginning. So um, we kind of have a history together. I, I don't know if you actually know this. Maybe you do. Um, my very first Utah Milky Way was experienced right next to you. So That Goblin Valley um, one was your very first Utah Milky Way? It was indeed, yeah. Um, my first Milky Way in a Bortle one. Um, my first Milky Way in the the greatest place in the world there is to shoot Milky Way, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, so we got this connection from the very beginning, man. I think you may have said it that night, but I have like put that in the back of my mind. And what an awesome way to get into it, because I know that uh, I'm always bragging about how awesome Utah skies are, and you were stoked to actually come out and be under one. Steve couldn't join us that night, and you and Steve were doing a big adventure push that 2018 year, and uh, so that was your first night. We got lucky to be there for your first night, because that Milky Way turned out fantastic from your Goblin Valley shot. Loved it. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so what got me hooked on Utah was honestly listening to the podcast. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I had just gotten into astrophotography, um, just gotten my first, you know, high-end, full-frame DSLR, and... I'd been shooting in Ohio for a couple of years and Ohio is just one of the most depressing places you could ever hope to do this hobby. (laughs) Just light pollution wise depressing or just no nature? Yes. Nature, um, light pollution, just there's the best we got is Bortle four maybe. And then the weather is just horrifying all of the time. Yeah. It's great to be in the desert, man. Um, But yeah, so you and uh, Brendan at the time, just talking about your adventures out there in Utah, um, man, you, you had me hooked. I was so excited <laughs> to get out there. We don't hide our biases when we talk about how awesome Utah is. And despite having gone to Oregon and uh, like locations in California, Nevada, Arizona, I still celebrate new, uh, our skies in, in Utah. Aaron Martinez likes to say that the real great skies are in New Mexico, but we'll find out. I'll find out. I'll get out to Bistai here next year as long as uh, travels allow with COVID. So, Phil, you've been with us from the very beginning. You've been talking about your adventures and sharing them on the Facebook page. We've been hearing from you. Um, Before you really took off with Steve, did you do any adventure photography on your own? Yeah, so um, it was more local things around Ohio. We have a region in the middle of the state called Hocking Hills, which is sort of very well known. It has a lot of um, interesting 
uh, they call them recess caverns. So um, places where water has carved up the rock. There are some great ledges there, waterfalls all over the place. So central Ohio, I would go to the Finger Lakes region of New York, um, Maine. But that was more um, not me traveling specifically for photography. It was family trips and throwing the photography along with it. You know, you, you get right. it where you can. Exactly. The kind where dad's out with his camera and they're all hoping he comes back in the car. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> or or a lot a lot of sitting and waiting or, you know, stacking rocks while I'm out there until it's too dark to see and things like that. <laughs> well, and when you live uh, where I do, um getting to any kind of sky, you're talking a 2 to 3 hour drive. So it's a it's a serious commitment if you if you want to get out there and do any night photography around here. So that just adds to the insanity. How much of that did you do before you came out to Utah? Uh, there was a couple solid summers of doing that. Okay. Um, every clear night, which you could honestly count on two hands, it seemed like uh, during <laughs> every, the summer. But every year, <laughs> if, if it was possible, I was out there. Well, that's the whole like mantra of Photog Adventures. I mentioned just barely in the last episode that getting out there and encouraging everyone to go out and do cool things like this. That is our core principle, our core belief in Photog Adventures is that we all should get out more. And 2020, a year where we really were pulled out of our work and we could go somewhere, we also couldn't go anywhere with lockdowns. And so when the summer kind of opened up for a little bit of travel, what a relief. Now, Phil, you went through something during this 2020 year. And you've actually had something that happened that we want to spend a lot of time talking about. But I want to begin it by talking about how you got it. I have a question specifically to COVID and how it still happened. But let's talk first about the whole idea of artist in residence. Can you quickly explain what it is? And then let's go into exactly how you secured it. Sure. So um, national parks across the country and even state parks and wilderness areas to a lesser extent um, they offer programs to artists who are interested in living and working in their parks. Um, I knew, obviously, I fell in love with the Utah National Parks um, very early on. I knew that was a place that I try to, I'm going to try to get every single summer if I possibly can. <laughs> awesome. Um, at the same time, I've been doing some traveling. I've been developing my skills. Um, I'm in a place where I'm feeling uh, fairly competent as a photographer. Obviously, we can always get better. You're extremely um, competent portfolio... as a photographer, Phil. Extremely competent. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, my portfolio has gotten to the point where I have some some things that people like and are excited about. So I thought I would throw my hat into this um, artisan residency. So what it involves is filling out an application in some cases paying a fee, although that wasn't my experience, um, sending, you know, a portfolio of images off um, and then waiting to hear um, what the group of people, and it's kind of varied groups of people. So real quick, about before your you explain you... the groups of people, on this application, are we talking just your name, your social, this and that, or are we having to write an essay? Are you answering questions? Uh, that that's a good catch, Aaron. So, um, at least for the ones I applied for, you did have to come with a kind of an artistic vision, a, um, a project proposal of sorts oh, okay. to say why I want to be at the specific park and the work that I want to carry out there and how it relates to the work I already do. Oh, interesting. 
So then you applied to multiple parks or multiple applications for the same park? Um, I applied to three different parks and all of them, obviously, I took the angle of night photography into. Um, I applied to Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, oh, cool. which um, I, I made a finalist for that. I, I didn't get it, but I made a finalist. So I was I was excited to at least do that. It's <laughs> enough to make me want to try again. Yeah. Um, I applied to Lassen Volcanic, which is a kind of an unknown national park over in California. Hey, I don't know. It's um, in California? It is, yeah. And they do have very very good skies there um some geothermal areas and things of that nature um very cool place um, i'm gonna give that one a try because you got to remember these artists and residencies they're not just for photographers per se they're for sculptors musicians um visual artists interesting um, i think where i ended up going i had a uh, a sculptor come eventually huh. so um yeah, you're you're not just going against other photographers. I mean, it completely makes sense that you're there taking photos of that area, but the idea that I'm going to come there and sculpt something—that's uh, a lot bigger of a project, and it's not exactly a one-night, few-week project. And that's interesting. So they were doing multiple sculpting projects, you think, or just one major one? I I couldn't him? speak to that. I just know that they uh, they take artists of any and all um, okay. media. Oh, man. Okay. So then you wrote that you were going to do night photography. Did you say how it blended in with your school teaching? Because your career right now is a school teacher. You were telling me before we went live that you teach seventh and eighth graders. So then how did you apply that in your application? Well, um, so I guess before we get to there, where, where I did apply and where I did get the post was Capitol Reef National Park. And the artisan residency they had available was um, specifically, they had these other ones, the mixed media ones, but mm. they have a spe specific artisan residency for night sky photographers. Oh, really? And Not when I found out about that, I had to do it. <laughs> had to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seemed like such a, such a natural fit. Um, it's in Utah. It's not only that, it's the darkest national park in Utah, like quantified by SQM readings. So um, the project proposal I put forward for them anyway was talking about um, the idea of a pilgrimage, which um, obviously for me, getting out every summer, going to Utah, that's a pilgrimage of sorts for me. Um, yeah, it's a place right. where it, it's a thing where you, you go out to a place that kind of has a spiritual calling to you. Like you, you must go there. You must you must become one with the place you're going. Um, so talking about just how night sky places of the world, places with truly dark skies kind of have called humanity um, for as long as they've existed and <laughs> how rare they are becoming these days and how special Capitol Reef is in the scheme of all of that. Um, that was one of the projects um, I put forward to them and worked upon. The other uh, was more scientific um, in nature um, obviously, you know, I do star tracking. That's primarily how I do my Milky Way photography these days. Yeah. Um, and that allows you to capture the atmospheric air glow with incredible clarity and detail and color. So I wanted to talk about how the darkest nights that you find on Earth are actually some of the brightest. And it's due to that air glow. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people don't particularly know about that. And certainly um, the folks at Capitol Reef, the Rangers and the superintendent and even the guests um had no idea that that's what they were experiencing when they were walking around in the black of night but 
could still see perfectly. <laughs> so even the rangers sometimes weren't aware of the night air glow. Yeah, correct. Wow. So you're helping instruct everybody. When you applied to the point that they told you you got it, how long of a wait? Um, I applied in October, and it was actually around this time in December that I found out. So okay. it was it was a few months. A few months, but not you know, going in 2020. So you knew you had it at the beginning of 2020. And then how much time did you spend sweating that it wasn't going to happen? Um, I spent all of the time up until I left on <laughs> May the 25th. Um, okay. So I'm during that time, um, obviously, January hits. February hits, um, Capital Reef finally releases their um, press release announcing their artists and residents for the coming year, um, me included. So they so told you in December, but announced it to the world in February, you're saying? Yes, exactly. So I kind of, I don't know if I was even supposed to, but I kept it under wraps kind of, and I announced it on my social media, my very meager social media at that point, kind of letting the world know. And then March happens. And the world shuts down and Capitol Reef National Park shuts down. Um, yeah. So obviously I'm very nervous at that point. <laughs> uh, with that information of shutting down, did they give you any sort of heads up that, hey, we're shutting down? Or did they make you wait just like all of us to find out what would happen? Yeah, I, I found it out from, uh, I think it was a news story. Hey, so the, the Utah and Mighty Five have shut down. That's it, huh? They don't even give you a, hey, quick heads up, artisan residents. You're not going to be able to come at this point, but we'll see how it's going. We'll keep you updated. Nothing like that. Um, No, not really. Yeah. I, As soon as I saw that, obviously, I reached out. Um, yeah. And I got kind of an optimistic appraisal of the situation, honestly. What they were shutting down was um, the main scenic drive through the park, the campgrounds, things like that. That's true. Um, my contact with the park kind of made it sound like well you're going to be a guy off in the middle of the night by yourself um you're probably going to be able to come but you know stay tuned so right so so march hits the park closes um april hits the park like halfway reopens and then by the end of may they fully reopened um i think they even fully reopened the other utah parks at that point they did because they even um, had block they had blocked the road to Canyonlands, Island in the Sky. You can't go to Mesa Arch. They had actually put a fence down. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. But that was yeah, short lived. And, and that was another thing kind of in my favor because, as you mentioned, um, Capitol Reef is all along that main thoroughfare. It's, uh, it's 24, I think, right? Is it they 24 on the sign of Capitol Reef? Because when you get through Capitol Reef and head south, go up over the mountain into what is Boulder, then you get on Scenic Byway 12. I thought Scenic Byway 12 continued right up into it, but maybe it converges into something else. But still, that whole drive is the main thoroughfare from east to west right there, unless you go up to I-70. So it is a huge passing point for going past Factory Butte into Capitol Reef and then on to Zion and Bryce. Yeah, which is a public highway, so they can't shut that down, obviously. That's true. I guess um, they so, never shut those so, roads so down. So I, I was feeling pretty good knowing that, that that was kind of a big aspect of things. Okay, so you had the situation of knowing you were going. You were excited about it. You proposed a plan. As soon as they told you, yes, you got it, did you do anything to kind of finalize that plan, schedule out your nights? What did you do for that? Well, um you're going to laugh or possibly <laughs> I'm laughing. Already. I don't know. So, so what, 
what I did was knowing what I knew about Capital Reef at the time, the the research I'd done on the place to kind of get ready. Um, I knew I needed a vehicle that was a little better than the Subaru I had parked in my driveway. So I actually, I bought a vehicle. I saw, and I was with jealousy, I saw that. I saw that on Facebook, and I thought, man, even Phil's buying himself a Utah Jeep, a nice, powerful, go-over-everything vehicle, and I'm sitting here with this crappy oil-leaking Subaru. And I'm like, come on. Why is someone well, who lives in Ohio 90% of the time have a better vehicle for getting around Utah than I do? And then I found out about your artisan residence and wondered, are they because of one or another? Yeah, um... First of all, I'm going to back you up. Not a Jeep, Toyota truck. Thank you. It was a Toyota truck. Okay. Yeah, to- Toyota FJ, FJ Cruiser. That's how I, my it, memories of vehicles. <laughs> it's capable like a Jeep, but uh, much more dependable. You don't have to work on it quite as much. Much more dependable. What's this nonsense? Yeah, I think you might be right. I don't know enough about vehicles to know if you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know too many Jeeps with 300,000 miles on them, like you can put on an FJ. But... That's enough of a step for me to say, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> the Toyota truck. So. So did you have a cab on it where you could sleep in the back? Um, I did. Unfortunately, as I as I lived with it a little longer, I'm slightly too tall for sleeping in the back, even going diagonal on an air mattress. Oh, so really? It wasn't great. With the uh, tailgate down and everything? Yeah. Oh, darn. So you bought but, too um, short of a truck bed. I, I mean, it, it was fine. Um I, I didn't spend that much time sleeping and I brought my little, my little pup tent to try to do, uh, you know, the, uh, cliched, put the light in the middle of the tent and set it out somewhere cool shots too. So we did some of that as well. <laughs> so then when you're thinking about a vehicle that you got specifically for photography, what went well with your purchase? Obviously what didn't go well, one of them was the fact that you were too short to sleep in it. Is there anything else that you're saying, I wish I would have got and anything you want to celebrate that you definitely were glad that you got that all of us should put in our minds that if we get a vehicle for photography, we should think of this. Yeah. So, um, what I knew about what a four by four vehicle ought to be, you can hear my dog right now, can't you? No. Actually, I'm hearing my cat okay. meow at me through my door over there, so that's what I'm hearing more. So I'm not hearing your dog at all. Keep oh, I it hear in. a little bark way in the <laughs> distance, but that's not a distraction. No worries. <laughs> okay, good. So um, what I what I knew about 4x4 vehicles and what I needed, um, that's exactly what I bought. And what turned out well was that it was exactly what, what I needed. Um, you have the experience of driving out to, like, Strike Valley Overworld overlook or places like that where you have to drive through rocky washes and kind of crawl over rocks and stuff mm-hmm. and a little experience have, as much as i want having the uh the four by four low range um having the uh rear locker that kind of lock it locks the rear axle to help push you up hills um all those things they said you needed i got and it worked out great i didn't have i didn't have a suspension lift or any of that the stock okay. truck was fine oh nice um obviously it didn't work out um a major full uh, replacement tire or you had a backup tire that was a full size yes yeah exactly like a jeep um it's mounted on the back full size tire all right on um i did buy new tires those that did not come on the truck when i bought it i bought uh, some kind of combo all-terrain mud train tires um just for good traction um and had them kind of rotate through all five tires as I was getting ready for the trip, which is also kind of important because if you throw a spare on, you don't want it to have completely different wear on it than the other tires. 
Oh, good point. Yeah. So then you were driving it at all before you came to Utah, or did you just use it finally to drive it to Utah? Dude, I turned it into my daily driver. It was sweet. <laughs> uh, loud, um, horrific gas mileage, but right. it was sweet. <laughs> I want an F-150. They're, they're like a a gomer like kind of a a yuppie truck it's not like a really big powerful truck it's more for like a yuppie kind of guy like me who just wants a big open cab and it feels nice and then i actually have a little bed space in the back and i'm five foot four so i could fit in any bed you could put me in a chest and i'm like yeah i fit just fine in here thanks <laughs> and so uh yeah you'd be you'd be fine in the fj that's for sure <laughs> So then when you um, drove in Capitol Reef, I don't want to hear any stories yet because we're saving that for number two, the segment two in this, but uh, did you have to go through sandy areas that you ever concerned yourself thinking, ooh, I wonder if I'll make it? Well, so um, the night before I got into Capitol Reef, I I had intended to go through Maroon Bells um, on the way out there. I stopped my first night out. I stopped at um, Rocky Mountain National Park and did a, a sunrise shoot at um, Dream Lake up there. Um, then the next night, I was trying to drive to Maroon Bells and sleep overnight at Maroon Bells. Um, Maroon Bells got got COVID too. They closed at about five miles from where you uh, reached the parking lot. There, oh, I got dang. all the way down there from the highway. They didn't um, have a marker at the highway part. They let you drive that close before they told you. Yeah, they did not. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that drive, but you get yeah. off of I-70 and then it's it's nearly 80 miles to Maroon Bells. It's a good long drive. What? And I got within five miles of the parking lot. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was bad enough when I thought you went 10 miles and at halfway point you found out. You're saying you went 75 miles and they said, oh, hey, we're closed. <laughs> and you drove through yep, terrain exactly. that was not paved, right? Or was it paved? Um, yeah, that, that drive was paved. That takes you all the way to Aspen Snowmass um, okay, and then so you kind of peel out of town. Place. Um, onto a, onto a, uh, it's a, it's a rocky kind of stone road. It's not, not too bad, but yeah, I got all the way up to this gate five miles from where I was supposed to stop according to the map and sorry, closed. Yeah. That has been one of the weakest links of what I've loved about Google maps is it tells you when places are closed and things are you know out of service. Like, okay, I shouldn't even go there with the information they put on their website that is the regular schedule they gets updated on google maps but unless they went through and updated it there outside of putting a extra like you think about from web design you put a new module or a block and you add that to your website to say hey we're closed but you don't change your regular hours section what is crawling the internet for google and updating their google maps isn't seeing that closure and so i constantly ran into places that said they were open but they were closed for covid and it drove me nuts i mean that's the least of most people's problems though i didn't get covid and i was able to travel more than a lot of people so yeah i can't complain too much but it's true that you could drive 75 miles without any heads up and that sucks yeah then, then surprise and this was i mean maroon bells is that's that's a mecca for, for photographers i've always wanted to go there um steve and i our trip last year um yeah last year um, we tried to go through there on the way back over to Denver, and it was raining and terrible, so we didn't go. I mean, I, I, it was my second try at the spot, and I had to turn around after a 75-mile trip. So anyway, That's that second it. night, uh, I, I, sleep, I slept at a rest stop again, and I ended up getting into um, the area around Hanksville a good five hours before I told uh, Penny at Capitol Reef I was planning on being there. So. Oh. 
to answer your question, a very long way of answering your question, did I get into any stuff with the vehicle? Yeah. Um, as I'm driving down 24, I look over to the side. I did not know that this was coming. I look over to the side and, oh, hello there. It's Factory Butte. You I want to see Factory, Factory Butte, Butte yet? No, I'd never been there. Oh. I hope you so, stayed uh, on the a, right. So a quick right parts. turn and then and then it was off, man. Um I, I went on this kind of gnarly random trail that goes over the Bentonite and just all over the hills around the base of it. It was it was a blast. <laughs> there are some good trails that you can follow. As long as you don't go off trail and wreck anything that's not, you know, driven on yet. It's pretty free and open range there and it's pretty awesome. Uh did you end end up on the cliff edge over there looking out towards the east? Um I I ended up on a cliff edge. I, I, I went off that main trail. I followed some, uh, some tracks and really got to do a little bit of flexing, uh, with the, <laughs> with the four wheel drive and ended up facing South kind of on the edge of a cliff. Um, so that was a cool view. Um, Steve and I, when he came out later on, we, we did that again and, uh, went a little further and it was, it was sort of scary getting turned around quite frankly. Um, but it was just, it was cool because that was the first like real truck stuff I gotten to do with the FJ. So, um, yeah, just tooling around factory butte on my own time out there in Utah. It was that place. It was kind cool. of a sneak peek of what was, what was ready to go for me for the next month. <laughs> so you hadn't been in factory butte ever in your, on your own. So did you get the same sensation that I get that when I'm there in person, I realize, man, this is much bigger than I realized. Oh yeah, it was shockingly huge, and the area around it was shockingly huge. It just kind of went and went and went. All those bentonite um, badlands around there are just fascinating, and the colors. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's purple and there's blue and there's green. I've been to Badlands National Park, but this is a very different kind of Badlands there, in my opinion. It's so cool, and if you have a drone, it's even better because you can get up high and see all of that color and texture. The really crazy drapey curtain that goes underneath Factory Butte that's all that petrified dunes that are just really gorgeous looking. Yeah, I, I was I was blown away. It was a great way to start the trip off, and <laughs> I was literally just kind of driving. I mean, the, the Google map was thrown out the window at that point. I just figured I, I'd, I'd find the road again. Yeah. I had five hours. Go and get lost. That's the advice I give to people who go to Venice who have never been because I like to go to Venice. I say, just go and get lost in there. Don't worry about anything. Don't go in the normal spots. Just wander the streets and get robbed. No, I've never been robbed in Venice. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the point where you've arrived in Capitol Reef, and now I want to hear some stories. So let's go ahead and take our only break of the podcast. We'll come back with Phil Sisto and talk about his experiences in Capitol Reef as artist in residence. You heard it from Phil. He said it. He loves the night skies in Utah. And I want you to join me out in more Southern Utah workshops. So I've added many more workshops. Come and check out the website, photogadventures.com forward slash workshops or erinkingphotography.com and click on the workshops link. These will be my last photography workshops for a while as I'll be taking time off from doing workshops and focusing working from home only while I go through some changes the next few years as well as focus on my books. And so if you want to come out with me on one last adventure, please check the out photogadventures.com forward slash workshops let's get out on an adventure together
Welcome back to the Faux Tug Adventures podcast. I'm hanging out with Phil Sisto here, the artist in residence 2020 for Capitol Reef National Park. I want to bring up your Instagram and website real quick for those who are hanging with us. If they want to follow Phil, where do they go on Instagram and where can they find your stuff? So, uh, yeah, on Instagram, I'm at p.sisto.images um, is where you can find me there. Um, I also post on uh, Facebook. I have like a photography Facebook page at Pisisto Images. Um, and then I have a website. I'm I'm pretty proud of it. I actually, I had never had a website until about a month and a half ago. So oh, really? my website is done. It's ready to go at uh, pisistoimages.com. All right, pisistoimages.com, everybody. So please get out there. Go check out Phil's work. Support him. Say thanks for jumping on the podcast by hitting the subscribe button, his follow and like over on his images on Instagram. So, Phil, you're in Capitol Reef now. You have just entered. Do they give you a welcome kit, a survival kit? Here's your snake beating kit. Or do they say, welcome, good luck, I hope you survive? Uh, so what, what happened was I went over to the, uh, park headquarters. I signed up as a volunteer in the national park. That is a requirement in order to, uh, get them some funding and stuff. Is so that the source of the hat I, you're wearing right now, uh, it is. Yeah. Volunteer Nas- national, national, national park, park service volunteer. Awesome. One of my prized possessions. Yeah. Um, be. so you, you sign up as a volunteer, um, you have to do, I believe it's, you have to account for 250 hours. Like I had to kind of keep a timesheet of the work that I was oh, doing. Okay. Thankfully work as an artist in residence can involve I shooting. It can involve cool. scouting. It can involve sitting in front of Photoshop. It can involve, um, I had to do a couple of presentations in the park. So all of that 250 hours was no problem at all. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, so they, then they give me the key to my house and oh, you have a house. the house, the house was something else. Three bedroom house. I had it really? all to myself right next to the, right next to the orchards there in Capitol reef. You could, you could walk out and pick, uh, pick fruits if you wanted to, You're there were kidding. deer hanging everywhere. Gosh, dang and it. then, you know, you were red here. rock domes everywhere. It was glorious. <laughs> you were here at a time when I finally could open up workshops again, and I had to go out, and I couldn't stay and hang out with you, and I would have had a place. There's a bedroom for me and everything. Absolutely. You and someone else. Oh, my gosh. That would have been awesome. That's such I already a told David. I already told David if he gets it, I know – I know the Brimhall house has three bedrooms, so you, you best be expecting a house guest. <laughs> yeah, you'd have no excuse now, David. We know. We know there's space. <laughs> <laughs> so got the key to my house, and uh, then it was just off to the races. So um, first things I saw were kind of the things that everybody goes there to see, the stuff that's in the um, the pamphlets, the scenic drive. I took a couple of hikes down the big washes and uh, looked at the rock formations along 24. Um, but then what, what was calling to me from the very beginning, Cathedral Valley. I was going to ask you about that. Yes. Cathedral Valley. The second day I was there, Cathedral Valley had to happen. I I wasted no time getting out there. And, um, so for people who are not familiar, Cathedral Valley is, um, it's a 90, I believe mile route that goes through, through the back country, north of the main part of the park. Um, to start your journey, you actually ford the Fremont River. You drive across it in your car. At one so point, obviously where it's you driest, or were you talking like actual water that's a few inches thick, deep? Um, it was about three feet deep. Three at the time I was feet there. deep. Yes. 
Yeah. Wow. Okay. I knew that it was going to take some planning to go up there, and so I haven't gone there yet on a whim. I didn't realize three feet deep of water. Real reality. Ooh. Yeah. So that's the that's the start of the loop closest to the main part of the park. Now it is a loop, so you can go from the other side and then drive all the way around to the Fremont River Ford and turn around. But um, I, I saw s- sedans driving through the river, so it's possible if you're smart about it and don't do it after a rain. You you enter the river and then you actually drive along the river for about a hundred. 50 yards or so and then you turn off on the opposite bank so you actually drive through the river it's it's pretty fun actually (laughs) is it obvious where to go or does it take a lot of planning ahead of time um it's i mean you can see down down a ways where you're supposed to drive i watched some videos and stuff of people uh you know fording the river they said keep to the right hand side for example when you're when you're driving that direction just because it's less deep there so i've watched some videos followed the directions the truck was fine so you start your journey um fording the river and you go through um the bentonite hills that we kind of referenced before the same kind of stuff that's around the base of um factory butte and from there the the journey takes you into spots with hoodoos there's um some great mud cracks you get to um, you get to the eponymous you know cathedrals there um, from the top of a cliff. You're you're looking down and then you see all of these massive sandstone edifices rising out of the floor of the desert um, from above them, which is just a spectacular experience. Um, but then you realize you got to get down there somewhere, and um, it's a little switchbacky. I'm not gonna lie. If you have a, a truck that's super long. You're going to do some backing up, oh, um, but nothing tight. crazy technical. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm distracted. I do this sometimes on a podcast when I'm talking to someone with great photography. I'll pull up their images over on one screen, and I never have the <laughs> discipline to just shut up. I always have to talk about them immediately. So that crack, I mean, I'm seeing this first image of cracks, and those are as deep and as rich of cracks as I found in one little Goshen dry wash that I found that has not been dry any year since. And I've never been able to get those cracks again. And those just look awesome. Yeah, and funny story about those cracks. So those cracks were along this drive I'm telling you about right now. Um, yeah. In Cathedral Valley. Um, so... I was driving along and I saw kind of this depression in the ground and there are a whole bunch of like cow footprints leading up to it because apparently in Utah, like you don't need to have fences. You just kind of let your cows go wherever. It's totally cool. I I don't know how the ranchers get their cows back when they need it. Whenever you want some beef, (laughs) you just call them in. So anyway, cow footprints (laughs) everywhere. And then obviously cow deposits everywhere. Oh yeah. And I look down the hill and then there's this, it looks like it goes forever when you look at my image. It looks like it goes forever, and that's oh, right. um, that, that's wide angle trickery. Is, I is love what it. That is um, <laughs> so the the area with the cracks is maybe 150 feet from oh, from one edge it. to the other of the mud cracks. Um, and I'm thinking the cows probably go down there and drink whenever there is water. Um, but man, just a, a feature that stuck out to me because that's that's been on my list for a long time having some cool mud cracks with the milky way i don't know what it is but we all do love it i don't know if it's the abstract pattern of cracks the texture the fact that because of the cracks you have interest in your framing 
all the way to the edge on right to left and all the way down to the bottom, that hyperfocal foreground that you definitely focus stacked in order to make this work. Right here, going out, reaching into the top third, middle third, I mean, that is fantastic. I guess it's just, it's such a perfect point of interest that carries through the image. There's no distracting elements. There's nothing in here that you didn't want in here. The only thing you would have wanted is more. Yeah. You're, you're right about that. So this seems like a point to talk about. Um, so when you're out in a place like this, scouting around, you have 90 miles to drive and just the landscape is incredible around you. Um, at least the way I kind of took to it and this, I just sort of came, came about it on my own. I'm dropping um, Google waypoints for myself along the way, just, just yeah, on the, smart. on the drive. So um, Google waypoint, I, I attached a little picture of what I was seeing, or I made a little description of the shot I envisioned. And it truly was just the freedom of driving around and looking and getting out at different places and staring at things different ways. The mug crack shot you're referencing, that was my third trip out there because I just, I hadn't found how I wanted it to look quite yet. Oh, okay. So just having the freedom to be able to go back to those places, navigate straight there, look at it in different lights and not have to, answer to anybody purely make your own time um that's the beauty of the artisan residency oh man that's right there that's poetic and romantic to everybody listening you had no boss you had nothing rushing you no one you were beholden to just what other interesting subject can i find and with you being a night photographer the biggest challenge is okay i want to do this with the milky way i want to do that with the milky way this is milky way but that is did you ever blend two compositions in a single night or more, or were you having to save one per night? Um, yeah, I, I tried to, I tried to do at least two images per night just because I wanted to put out a pretty good um, portfolio of images for the park. I ended up coming away with 20, 20 individual images that are of the quality that I was okay sharing with them. And there are several other, you know, I might get around to them. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a situation where you're driving around and you're, you know, I'm, I'm facing to the South, I'm facing to the South West, um, where's some stuff that I can kind of look at that's close together. So there was, there was some situations where, you know, you, you grab your shot in the blue hour and then it's off to the races, which off to the races in, uh, the Cathedral Valley drive is not the greatest idea, but, you know, Why? What the, do you mean? The truck did okay. Um, just because it's it's an uncomfortable ride when you're going the the speed that you ought to drive over it, which is you know 15 to 20 miles per hour max, uh -huh. depending on the terrain. Um, when you're trying to make time and go, you know, 15 miles between places in the space of 45 minutes, uh, it gets a little exciting, <laughs> <laughs> a little a little jarring. Yeah, I bet. Bounce, 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 bounce. Did you ever have any gear inside the cab of your vehicle uh, come off, fall in weird ways, things that took any damage? Yeah, uh, not not inside of the truck, but, it, you know, stuff was always in a different place. Every time you open the tailgate, everything was in a different place. <laughs> everything Something would be falling at you. <laughs> so then you're out here and you're trying to find the best compositions. Did you feel extra pressure? We all already have, like, composition paralysis when we get to cool places. Now that you're an artist in residence and you have some like major shoes to fill, did you get any extra pressure on your shoulders? Yes. I, I guess you could say that when I first arrived, but then when I kind of immersed myself in where I was, the 
proverbial juices just kind of start flowing. <laughs> you kind of get lost in, in the landscape and where you are. Um, I didn't particularly feel anything except for the pressure to like get the images done once once I captured them. There's there's always like the gripping need to see what exactly I've got inside my uh, memory card. You're, right. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Oh, Maybe yeah. you're not. You, you don't process as much as you ought to, Mr. King. So... Uh, that is 100% true, and the only one default is two years of being the main workhorse for all the other content. So I was like, okay, I'll let Brendan work on his images, and I'll do this part. And then when Brendan left and I was stuck with workshops, I kind of was at a keeling point of burning. And that I wasn't burned out as much as I was just exhausted. And so I loved everything I was doing, but I didn't have any interest in taking any time on anything for a while. And I took a break. And I took a break before 2020, which is a terrible idea because 2020 ended up delivering a mandatory break and I shouldn't have taken the break right. until 2020 came because then I was all sorts of stressed about different things. So yeah, I do have a deserved slap on the wrist for not processing more. And I'm excited to use um, a, friend, a friend of mine, Franz, has hooked me up with a star tracker. You used a Skywatch Star Adventurer, right? Uh, yes, I did. I actually just got a, a new star tracker. Oh, but yeah, sweet. That's what I was using we'll have to Utah, talk about that at the end. I have one now, and I'm excited to go out and make more use yes. of it. And because 2020 had what it had with my workshops and not actually owning a vehicle that could drive me anywhere. I haven't made good use of it. So my major goals, reason why I haven't released my workshops for 2021 is because I really want to minimize them so that I have more time doing my own photography. For the last two years, I've just been doing photography behind other people's tripods. Like I saw the Comet Neowise through other people's cameras because I was on workshops. And so I am uh, going to be more selfish this year and do my own photography. So your images, as I'm going through them, everyone I recommend go to P Sisto. P as in Paul, or as in Phil, but it's just a bad way to say Phil when you have a PH. <laughs> P as in Paul, Phil Sisto Images, psistoimages.com. Check out his images, and as you're scrolling through, you'll see exactly what he's talking about with the air glow. It's intense out there sometimes, and you can see how some nights there's a lot of air glow. Some nights there's not so much, and it's just a difference in conditions in the sky. It's not something you can always expose for, so it's not like some trick in the exposure to make it show up. Just the only thing you can do is always add shutter length if you add shutter length you have more color and then you get that air glow like crazy and star tracking is the best so as i'm scrolling through these images i am seeing an image that you shared on facebook that i just loved and it has the great principle of the hyperfocal foreground subject that leads into the image as you do that stretching that happens on that bottom third as the whole really close subject looks like it stretches for feet but it's really like inches and it goes up to the underside of an arch on the left side, and you kind of have this peeking out Milky Way that sneaks in between the arch and a rock. With this image on Facebook, you started sharing a story of how things went. Are you familiar with the image I'm talking about? Yeah, I know exactly the one you're speaking okay. of. That's actually the one that um, the park superintendent requested. That's uh, the one image they love the most? <laughs> it's yep. fantastic. From top to bottom, the composition is terrific. His post-processing of the dark foreground is terrific. You need to follow Phil Sisto's process here if you want to know how to do it right. So tell us the story from the beginning to end. What happened with this capture? So the, the feature you're talking about is the Hickman Bridge, which is this massive, like, 100-foot-across natural bridge. Um, it's one of the signature kind of icons of Capitol Reef, it, which is honestly a place that doesn't have too many icons. Um, the hike to get to this bridge 
is um, it's about a, a mile and a half each way. Mm, not bad. Um, and for, well, the thing about hikes in Capitol Reef is pretty much all of them are directly uphill. Terrible. Um, it sounds terrible now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it, it's a place that's, it's hard to photograph because it's so huge. You can shoot it from a distance, but then you have rock formations behind it. I'm sure you're familiar with those kind of arches that you see in Utah. Like yeah. they're amazing to look at, but they're not that photogenic when you try to take them from an angle that shows everything. Exactly. It's such a bummer when you lose that silhouette inside the arch because there's too much going on behind it. And unless you can dodge and burn it out, it's really hard to draw that depth and the separation. So your decision on your composition here, all entirely yours, inspired by anything else you've seen? Um, it, it, it was a matter of this is the only way I could shoot this and have any part of the natural bridge in the shot and also have the Milky Way because the natural uh, bridge is oriented north to south. Oh, dang. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it but is. But I wanted end. to have it. I, it's a shot that that speaks capital reef from beginning to end. I mean, it, it's, it's one of their signature formations and I felt kind of, it was my job as their artist in residence to show people these things they see in the park all the time, but in a way that only I could have seen it. Hmm. So um, anyway, making the shot. So I took a hike up there and huffed and puffed because I'm not the sveltest person in the world um, <laughs> Amen, in the brother. middle of the afternoon, as I was wont to do, um, lots of water, lots of stops. Um, and that's purely because you're shooting all night and you sleep through the cool hours in the morning. So by the time I was ready to go, it's normally one or two in the afternoon when I wanted to take any kind of hikes. Oh, that's terrible. So I, I hiked up there in the heat of the day, oh, yeah. um, checked it out, walked around for a long time trying to figure out with, uh, my night AR how I could make this shot happen. And I found the spot after about 45 minutes of walking around. Okay, emphasize that. Um, Everyone listening who's brand new to this, Phil, sure. a fantastic photographer, a really good eye for composition, a natural skill. He is someone that you would admire if you look through his images and say, oh, I want to shoot like this. It took him 45 minutes to settle on this composition. So think about that next time you're trying to pick your composition. If you think you're taking too long, you know, check your time because 45 minutes for Phil, it could be something like that for you, and it should take some time. Really really dissect it and plan it. Okay, go ahead, Phil. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and especially with the way this arch kind of enters enters the frame from the top left there, how high you put the tripod greatly affected how that angle looked. Interesting. So getting it so it went down to the right part of the frame to, to plop the Milky Way in the middle there, um, you know, a matter of inches greatly affects how that composition looks. So I, you know... I'm out there like taking pictures of how my tripod's set up with my phone so I can exactly duplicate it when I come back. <laughs> when you're saying you captured this at the right angle, was it all one uh, portrait orientation shot or is this a panel going up? Um, it was one uh, portrait orientation shot for the foreground with my 14 millimeter lens. Okay. And then the sky, as I always do, I shot a panel with my 40. Gotcha. You're always doing a panel with your 40. Interesting. I, I want to continue on with the story, but real quick, when you're capturing the sky versus the foreground, for those of you on you know uninitiated to star tracking Milky Way photography, your foreground is going to be blurry. You can't do anything about it. You have to blend them back together. So you don't move your tripod. You don't move it far, if anything at all, so that it's not a composite. You keep it a blend, but you do have to blend the sky with the foreground. And being that, 
you're saying that when you're capturing your sky, you quickly took a 40 millimeter pano, like a Brady Bunch pano, meaning you went right and down a kind of equal number of squares. What did yeah, you do? Yeah, so um, there, there's legitimate math you can make based on the field of view of the lens and what orientation you're in. And I'll never do kind that of, math. Okay. Not me. So I wouldn't <laughs> understand it. <laughs> so, so for example, um, a 14 millimeter wide angle lens, you're talking like a hundred and four degree field of view top okay. top to bottom if you have it in portrait orientation the 40 millimeter lens has uh in the neighborhood of like a 28 degree field of view so that tells you you can do that math i can break i can break that in and then with the overlap i can break that into pieces and say okay i need to go uh four vertical frames to match my 40 millimeter sky with the field of view of my 14 millimeter lens and i need to go uh you know three across in order to fill that, but then you got to take the overlap into account as well. So it's so you end up it's, with twelve plus images. It's a little mathy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, in my experience and the way that I kind of do things a little more intuitively and uh, haphazardly. Let's just not glorify it too much. Haphazardly, I would just eyeball it. You know, I'd be <laughs> watching that I've covered the same space. How much of the bottom foreground where there's no sky did you capture at all? With the forty millimeter panel, um, not a whole lot. I, I followed the, uh, the advice like uh, Eric Benedetti shared on his course that he did with you about you got to get at least a little bit of your entire horizon across the bottom, and that's all I went for. But again, okay. in a kind of very landscape like that, the very bottom horizon is different on the left hand side than the right hand side. So, right, I'm haphazard like you when I'm capturing it to an extent. When you get back in the in the lab in front of your computer and you need to make it look like real life is where you got to get kind of nice with how your calculation has worked out because I'm not trying to scale the Milky Way any different than how it would look if I shot it at 14 millimeters, for example. Right. Exactly. You want to maintain what you saw. Okay, cool. So then with that little behind the scenes of how you captured, you went through the process. Uh, tell us more about that night. Yeah. So after I, after I did my, uh, my little sweaty trip up to look at it during the daytime. <laughs> I went home and I went home to, to my palatial estate there at the park, uh, made myself some dinner in the lovely full kitchen they had for me. It's just so nice here. And I, 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 I can't get over mansion. what an experience oh that was. <laughs> Artist in um, residence. Made myself some dinner. Tempted to stay in the house the whole time. You know what? Yeah. What, the afternoons when it was 104 degrees and that air conditioning's going and you got to walk out the door into the bright light of day after <laughs> Maybe having four hours of sleep, you're you're not wrong about that. <laughs> so are you saying that um, you hiked this, went, found your composition, then went back home? Yes, yeah. Um, oh. And for a short hike, hike like that, I mean, three miles round trip, that's that's perfectly doable. Cer certainly. I wouldn't um, be tempted to stay up there since I did the hike, but that's many hours to wait. Yeah, a main it is Milky for sure. Too. We're talking midnight is when you started getting where you wanted it, but probably you had to wait till what, one or two before your Milky Way was in position? Yeah, cl close to two o'clock to get it as vertical as it was needed. Okay, so you had a long wait. When did you take off to go back out there? Um, I went back out there, um, I think I left around eight o'clock. It's like a 20-minute drive down the road to get to the trailhead. So, um, so you still had a chance to quite, hike quite, up in the light. Yes. Yeah. Quite light at the time. Um, and I know I wanted a blue hour shot. That's how I prefer to shoot my foregrounds. Oh, I see. So I got all my gear. I got my 
star tracker with me you know it when you when you track as you'll discover that's there's just that element of extra weight that you gotta add to things so I, i'm all loaded up um and start up this trail the the trail starts out um with those you know rock kind of natural steps um and it's it, it starts going up pretty much immediately uh and switch backs a little bit so i'd gone up for the majority of the first climb before i'm thinking about things doing the checklist in my head and realize oh my headlamp's not on i don't have my headlamp oh you didn't have your headlamp i didn't have my headlamp <laughs> um i didn't have my backup headlamp either because it was plugged in in the kitchen in my house oh never see. fear though i always have my goal zero micro lantern with me oh i okay. always have that that's just kind of my one of my redundancies um <laughs> smart Plus, it's cool for breaking off the little hero shot selfie, too, if you feel like doing that while you're waiting. Yeah, I saw one of those that you had. It was a good one. It's a bright light. Thanks. Um, yeah, and I like them because you can dim them all the way down, too, which is cool. Um, so anyway, I, I'm like, okay, I got I got the micro lantern. This will suck, but it'll be fine. Um, go up, shoot, shoot, shoot. Four, uh, blue hour is about over, and I'm thinking, ah, can't really tell how big this natural bridge is. Maybe I'll put myself in the frame, just do one of those hero shot things, see how it looks. Um, and I'm looking, I get the light out because I want to set it up in the frame to figure out exactly where I want to stand. Yeah. The thing is dead. It is dead as disco. <laughs> Your third backup redundancy is a dead battery? Yeah. Yeah. The, the micro lantern was, <laughs> it was no good. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Had you just used it too much that week, or you never even brought it out yet that trip? So, yeah, I'd used it a fair amount, and it had even been plugged in once or twice. Um, but you got to remember, like, this was probably my sixth night in a row going out. Um, <laughs> by that point, like, you're getting sloppy. You've got the habit sort of built. You're going out the door without <laughs> yeah. things you might need. Um, I just, I, I think I grabbed the wrong one off the counter, honestly, because I have two of them. Oh. Um, I have a pair, and I think I grabbed the one that was not charged all the way just as soon. I, I got this, so it'll be fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, blue, blue hour is basically over, and um, the only light I have on me is my iPhone. Ah, and hopefully pretty charged. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I'm obviously not fussing around on my phone because there's no signal of any kind there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just kind of wait out, get the shots I need and I'm getting ready to leave. And I turn on the iPhone to get the flashlight going and it's a 20% because apparently it had been searching for signal all this time. Oh, that's the worst. I was going to ask you if you did that trick, you do have to turn off the cell tower on your phone. So it won't look yeah. and look and look. That's how I, this is how I learned that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's emphasize that real quick because everyone should learn who's on this podcast right now. If you have an iPhone or any kind of phone, particularly an iPhone, if you swipe down on inside your phone, you can see that you can turn on and off your you know, Wi-Fi, airplane mode, all that stuff. We also have the cell tower green circle. And if you just turn that guy off when you're out traveling and also the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth so they're not looking and searching for any connections, it won't use as much battery as it could. I mean, it's instead of constantly searching and pumping out signal waiting for a response, it's just going to sit dormant and act like an iPod that you're holding in your hand and only use what you turn on. 
And so that is one of the tricks we use out in the desert that's very, very few times mentioned. Kathy Hennahan was the one who showed me that for the first time, and I never thought of doing it because I drive so much with the car, I plug it in, I don't even think about it. But she said that yeah. that's what she's been doing to save battery in her phone, and I've been doing it ever since 2017 when she told me. So, yeah, definitely turn off your cell phone tower search when you know you're in an area without signal and you want to preserve any battery whatsoever. Yep, for sure. And as a teacher, I, I tell my students, try to learn try to learn one new thing every day. That, that was my new thing for the day, although uh, <laughs> not the greatest timing to be making my uh, – Making my revelation. You want to learn that when you made it to their vehicle. Now you're thinking you have an, a mile and a half to go with potentially no light. Yep. What happened? Well, what happened was I, I packed up I packed up and started walking. At blue hour or um, you waited for your Milky Way? That's where that dark night really came into play. Were you waiting for your Milky Way? Oh, no, Way? That, that was, it was fully dark. Okay, so you waited for your Milky Way, got your shot, and then decided to go back. Yep, yeah, I mean... Okay. Obviously, I'm not going to miss the shot, Aaron. Come on. Let's be reasonable. Right. I wondered if you had enough time to go back and forth if you thought about it, but no. So you stayed up there smartly, prioritized the shot. And then, um, you know, people say things like you can't see your hand in front of your face. I've never been in a dark enough location where I haven't been able to see my hand in front of my face unless it's like inside a storage room in the basement of something. And so out in nature, you still have a little bit of light. What could you see and what kind of danger were you facing? Um, I mean, that was the point I was trying to make to the park visitors in my presentation. Um, I could see extremely well, honestly. I. I don't know if people listening have like looked at that table of the Borel scale that like Royce Bear puts up about you know what what the descriptions of all the levels of the Borel scale are, but Borel scale one, which is where Capital Reef is, um, tells you that you should be able to see very distinct dark lanes in the Milky Way, and the starlight should be so bright that it actually casts shadows on the ground from objects, and that is absolutely true when you're in a place that dark. <laughs> um, you, you can see shadows behind rocks. You can see your shadow on the ground. Um, that starlight is intense. And when you can combine it with the air glow, which is not blocked in any way, you look around and the sky is not black in the least. Nope, not in the least. So you had some vision. So did you try any of it without your phone just so that you could save battery? I, I did. I, I, I kind of shuffled my way along the path, reaching out with my feet kicking stones out of the way, um, feeling with my hands as much as I could. Um, I'm sure I looked quite a sight if uh, any of the nocturnal animals, the horrifying spiders and scorpions were out there watching me. I'm sure it was What's quite, wrong with quite a thing guy? to see. <laughs> when I work in the workshops, I keep my lamp turned off and I just walk behind people's tripods. So as I look down on the ground, I'm always looking for the darks and the whites. You know, there's like contrast that I'm watching. And like you said, yeah. where you kick your foot out, it's like when I see a contrast and I have to go around it, I kind of tap, 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 kick and make sure I'm not stepping on something that's going to roll or I'm not stepping in a hole versus a flat subject. Because even though it has that color difference, I'm not entirely certain how far down it might be if at all. And so you're always wanting to not trip yourself. So if you do walk in the dark, you, you spend a lot of time kind of looking and gingerly stepping and then committing to a step. And you had a mile and a half of that. How long did you go without your phone light? Um, so there, there were some breaks. There was, there was some soul searching along the way where I'm, I get to large rocks and kind of lean on them. And I'm thinking to myself, I could just stay out here i could sit on this rock and watch the night go by and wait till it's light enough to see 
And then it's like, no, that there's that bed in this house waiting for me. I, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so then you kind of get the courage up to move on. Um, I, there was a long moment like that because I don't know if, if anyone has done this hike. So coming back from the bridge, there's a lot of slick rock, which actually ended up being the scariest part because oh, you bet. can't see edges and there's, there's nothing to kick particularly. So I use the phone a fair amount on that part. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of go up the hill and then you go down the big switchbacky hill you started on. So when I got to the top of the switchbacky hill, knowing that there are all these uneven, you know, kind of carved out stone steps that may have been natural or man-made, it's hard to tell. Um, that's when I had a real long think about, do I really want to fall down this hill right now? Oh, no, no. <laughs> Did you have the tracker weight plus counterweight and all of that stuff in your bag? Uh, yes, yeah. Oh, I, I did bring the, the counterweight with me. <laughs> it's heaviest as possible then. Yes, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, so I, I resolved to turn on my light and just see how quickly I could go down this hill in the, in the soft glow of the iPhone light. Um, and the battery finally blinked out. I, was, I, could see, um, I could see reflections on the windshield of my truck down in the parking lot. So I did the, the rest of that climb down you know, in, in complete darkness, but at least I knew where I was going. Okay. So you made it past the worst of the switchbacks or were you in some of them in pitch black? Yeah, no, I, I was in, uh, I was in the last kind of gradual climb down these, these uneven stone steps oh, in the pitch black. Goodness. And yes. And so memories of, I'm pretty sure it was you that had Michael Shane Bloom on his, yep. on, on your podcast at one point who told a very similar story about, starlight on his windshield i was like this is i know i know exactly what he was going through now <laughs> i'm glad you remembered that podcast episode because i keep thinking about it in the story too michael shamelum's the other famous story of having no light and having to go back in alabama hills and so he was trying yeah, right. to find his vehicle out there oh man and a very you know he could go any direction wrong you at least had their down and you could fall to your death or a broken leg but uh you at least knew one direction you were going yeah there was sort of an organized trail i think he was straight up off trail he was just yep. kind of walking around so oh man i can't even imagine <laughs> oh yeah um, long story short friends uh charge every light you have and now i travel around I mean, I'm holding it up, so you'll see it. I, I'm traveling around with kind of the lightweight version of the little Jackery power, power bank. Power yeah. Thing, so that is a, yeah, that's a permanent fixture in the bag now. It's one of those things in life that you run into a situation where you wish you had one, you buy it, and you never need it again the same way, but at least you have it. It's like preparedness earns you the right to have everything else not go so wrong. Yeah, I guess so. At any point, did you come to a decision that you were going to pull your camera out, put some batteries in it, and use the LCD screen light? You know, that never occurred to me, Aaron. And <laughs> now you based off that. of uh, based off of this new camera that I, I only sort of knew how to use at the time, that probably would have been a good idea because the, the LCD screen, it's bright even at the lowest setting. So. so it would have been a good idea. Yeah, no, it definitely would have been a good idea. Dang. Oh, man, that's the last thing I would think about that I have that lights up. And so if you have that situation, everybody, uh, use your camera, use whatever you got. Go to your – take a long exposure so it's white only, and then just hold that white light up against everything. <laughs> <laughs> I actually I actually did keep the camera out and take a couple long exposures of the uh, 
the view in front of me just to kind of like yeah. pre-plan it in my head. That's smart. Yes. That's a really good idea because like you said, you just take a long exposure and can see everything and you know, okay, this is what I'm faced with. <laughs> and how long did it take you to that's go? What got me, that's what got me through the slick rock at the beginning. Um, taking the pictures. Yeah. So how long do you think it took you overall on that hike back? Uh, I, I wasn't checking times per se, but it felt forever. <laughs> my guess would be three hours maybe. Three hours to do what had taken you how long before? 45 minutes each way, including some huffing and puffing. Yeah. So you went from 45 minutes to three hours just because you're trying to play it safe, and you made it. You successfully yeah. made it. No one else knew where you were. No one else was coming until the morning, so the last thing you wanted to do was put yourself in a bad situation, which is why you had those soul-searching moments where you think, I could just stay until sunrise. I can just sit yeah, here I, in nature. Just, just wait for the blue hour. <laughs> it gets bright enough at that point. You could have walked there with, you could have ran back at that point. Geez, that's scary. Okay. Um, I love those kind of scary situations that end up being educational, even though I never want anyone to be in those situations who are listening to the podcast right now. But the image is well worth it. Guys, go check out psystoimages.com because it's worth seeing. The work that you did, I just want to ask one behind the scenes stuff on the cat on the image. You said you enjoyed Blue Hour for it. How um, much work was it to try and white balance it away from the blue hour colors on everything? And how deep in blue hour do you go? Do you go until it's more dark and not as much the blue? Because looking at your rocks, your trees, everywhere that you had to put your mask in order to bring in your sky, that could give you quite a halo of blue sometimes. What kind of nightmare was the post-processing? Um, I do wait till later in blue hour if I can, because um, it does take away from that blue tonality. You try to kind of counterbalance the white balancing in camera too. Like if I normally shoot my skies at um, 4,000 Kelvins, um, crank it up closer to the six range. Um, and then, yeah, masking, masking is what masking is, especially when trees are involved. Oh man. Um, I use uh, luminosity selections a lot. Oh, um, minimum filter. I'm sorry. A minimum filter is what um, is what's kind of been a revelation um, with my post processing this year. I'd use minimum filter for star reduction for as long as I've been doing star reduction. But what that's but what that, the minimum is designed for is to actually shrink the mask in kind of an organic way, so it doesn't just cut it off hard. It it, it adds soft pixels along the edge, um, depending on how you set it. So that's been a, kind of a game changer too. And it's a minimum fix that you apply, a minimum filter that you apply for that, huh? Okay. Yes. Yeah. You you, uh, you make your luminosity or you make your color channel selection uh, to create the mask, and then you can kind of selectively apply a minimum filter um, to get rid of some of those edges and things like that you're referring to. Okay, that's awesome tip. Okay, you guys take note of that. I've definitely kept you long already, but I do wonder if there's any other story that you wanted to share before we close out of here. I get I guess like one one other kind of interesting outing was away from the park. Um I had seen quite a while ago this image of a decaying um hearth place, a brick hearth out in the middle of the desert surrounded by uh red rock and, you know, scrubby desert stuff. Cool. Um, that supposedly is attributed to Butch Cassidy um, and the Wild Bunch gang. This was a cabin that they posted up in. <laughs> um, it's north of Hanksville. It's not. It's not particularly on a map. Um, although I found um, some GPS waypoints 
So this was when Steve came out and joined me. He, that's my traveling partner, Steve Richards, um, came out and joined me for part of the thing. And we, we determined to go out and find this place. So it, it took some searching. Um, we went through some kind of crazy terrain. Um, there are these massive sand dunes north of Hanksville. Um, and the sand was blown all over the road. And sand is always something that worries me, even if I'm in a, the most capable vehicle in the world, because right. anything can get stuck in sand. So several stretches with, you know, several hundred yards of sand across the road. So that was sketchy and exciting. We kind of flew over it and fishtailed all over the place. <laughs> um, it looked like it was going to rain at one point. So obviously rain in the desert, you always want to take uh, kind of seriously when you know you're going to be going to da- down into um, some slick rock canyon areas. Um, and then we, we came upon the place where it was supposed to be and, and we're up on top of a ridge and where, where is it? It looked like it was supposed to be down in a valley. Um, got out and looked at my kind of screen caps of the Google map and determined, Oh, it's actually completely below us when you walk out to the edge. Um, so thinking about how are we going to get to this place? There's kind of a natural ramp going down the hill that looks very extreme. Like, Better than 45 degree angle going down this hill. Um, all slick rock. The car probably could have done it, um, but that's the only way that looks like you could get to this spot. Um, so we drive down the road a little more um, and put in at the end of this wash where there's a bunch of cows kind of hanging out. There's a natural spring. Um and what it ended up taking was just kind of walking up the wash and looking around because this this hearth, I mean Butch Cassidy and the gang, Butch and the guys uh, picked it. So it was hard to find, obviously. Mm -hmm, And when you're only looking for a little piece of it, um, even harder to find um, Red Rock Chimney among Red Rock. Um, So that was kind of a cool adventure, um, locating that place and thinking about the history that supposedly is in that location. That's one thing that people forget is that Butch Cassidy, I mean, Butch Cassidy is Roy Parker and he's from Utah. I mean, that guy is a little Mormon kid who became a, uh, a very n- infamous, infamous thief. And uh, just, I don't know why, but I, I celebrate him. I think he's awesome. And I always... Yeah, well, and that, then there's the whole, like, you know, supposedly he went down to South America after the big heist. I mean, it's all very romantic to, to think <laughs> yeah, about it. He's still alive. He had this place in this maze of Utah Red Rock to get away from the authorities. And, and this this is supposedly the place. Um, yeah, it was just cool. I don't, I don't know if we went to Butch's, Butch's house or not, but it was a great place to be. You go very, past Penguin, a very interesting Bryce side Canyon, You can go right up there to Butch's house where he's from. Yeah. Right. The, the boyhood house, right? Yep. Exactly. Your parting words, your parting advice for anyone who's thinking, dang it, I want to be an artist in residence. What would you say? Um, I would say, um, be sure to do your homework because there's some residences that will fit you better than others. Obviously, this was a night sky photography artist in residency, a perfectly natural fit. Um, but there are some parks that are that are going to speak to you more than others. And you can't just go in there and BS why you want to go there. You have to have a plan. You have to know the park very well to say, how would I fit with what their mission and their landscape um, entails? All of this has got me so stoked to get out to Capitol Reef, Phil. So thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, it's been a blast, man. It's been a long time coming, so it's good to 
it's good to actually like spend a long time talking to you. That's not us focusing on what's going on on our cameras and stuff. Right. But it's been a great. And just not just passing through conversation that we say, and then three months, eight months later, say something again. Yeah. We wanted right. to get on yeah. in 2018 after your adventure with Steve to see how everything went and do a podcast with both of you. Then we never did that. 2019 never happened. And so this is two years in the wait. And so I'm so glad to do it, man. Dude, the, uh, the, the 2019 journey is that that could be a whole episode in itself. So if you ever want to talk about how last year went, uh, yeah, that was a banger. Okay, cool. That means I'll pull on you and Steve and we'll go through that later. That's when we're in like in the dead of winter and we're wanting to think about the adventures of the future. I bet I could pull you and Steve on in January or February and do something. That'd be awesome. Two words, big bend. Big bend. Oh, big awesome. bend is the only place that kind of gives Utah a run for its money. Oh big no. Bend is- <laughs> Big Bend is like dark like Utah, but then you're so much further south. You have all that extra stuff south of the core. It's just glorious. Oh, that is true. Cat's Paw Nebula. Oh, oh far much more information down there as you go further south. So, yeah, that's a good point. It's crazy dark, I've heard. And you know what? I don't need to worry about people competing with Utah. I want more skies like Utah. Let's have a renovate. Let's have a revolution against the light pollution and see if we can try and, you know, have a renaissance of sorts for opening up our night skies in more places. So that'd be awesome to have plenty of competition for Utah. I love that. Your lips to the good Lord's ears, man. (laughs) Thanks again, Phil. Thanks, everybody. Again, I hope you guys get out there and have a photog adventure and see you guys in the next podcast next week. Thanks, Phil. You got it, man.